Lord, because you put these words in scripture for a reason. So may we learn from them for our lives and not just for history, but for our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be doing Smyrna, the fearful church this morning. If you want to turn in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, this will be the shortest of the letters in the church. Not necessarily the shortest message, but the shortest of the letters that Jesus wrote. This is about suffering, partly, because none of us want to suffer. Anyone here enjoy suffering? Anybody? Would you admit it if you did? We all fear harm. Here are some startling odds for you about fear. This can be rhetorical, but if you want to raise your hand, you can. How many of you are afraid when you fly? You have a 1 in 10 million chance of dying in an airplane crash. How many of you are afraid when you get in your car? (laughs) Is this why you walk, Santa? Because, you know, pedestrians get hit too. So 1 in 500 chance of dying in a car accident. So 1 in 10 million flying, yet 1 in 500 in a car accident. How many of you are afraid of heights? More of you there. The chances of a deadly fall from a high place is 1 in 65,000. However, your odds of of identity theft are 1 in 200. Do you fear being struck by lightning? The odds are 1 in 2 million. Yet, get this, the odds of being killed by a meteorite, including the giant extinction event one, are one in 700,000. So your chances are greater that a meteor is going to hit you than you're going to get struck by lightning. Your chance of dying from a dog bite, one in 147,000. But your chances of being injured mowing your lawn is one in 3,600. So you should be more afraid of walking by a lawnmower than a dog. So Gary, when you do that last mowing, you all stay away because, you know, it's more dangerous. Now at the beach, how many of you fear sharks? Dan is the only one. Well, take this, Dan. Your odds of being killed by a shark are 1 in 100 million. Your chances of being killed by your spouse... One in 135,000. So next summer, when you go to the beach, don't keep your eyes on the water. Be looking at that beach chair next to you. So we're afraid of the wrong things. And the church of Smyrna also had fears, and in this case, a fear of suffering. Smyrna, which is modern Izmir in Turkey, was a port city of stunning beauty and wealth. It had paved streets, magnificent buildings. It was destroyed in the 6th century, but resurrected, so to speak, in the 3rd century. That'll be important. Remember that little tidbit. Smyrna's Smyrna's name came from producing the perfume myrrh, myrrh, sorry. And myrrh, of course, was one of the gifts of the wise men, if I'm remembering right, and it was used in embalming the dead. So 
Smyrna was self-governed by Rome. It was especially chosen to have a temple to Caesar in which every citizen of Smyrna was required once a year, if not more often, to offer a pinch of incense and declare Caesar as Lord. You can imagine that might cause a little bit of problems for the Christians of Smyrna. And so it became known as the city of martyrs because of the number of Christians killed there. So let's look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus tells them, remember I said a couple weeks ago he would draw from the description in Revelation chapter 1. Well, he pulls out that idea that he is the first and the last. And that reminds the people of Smyrna that he is the almighty God, that Jesus Christ is aware of everything that goes on, that he's not surprised, it's not beyond his control or his knowledge what's going on in the city. And so he wants to assure them that Nothing is a big mystery to the eternal first and last. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to suffer. It doesn't exempt them from suffering. But it says, I know what's going on, and I'll be with you in the midst of that suffering. And so he reminds them of that when he says, I died and came to life. Now, the city was resurrected. Remember, I told you in the, the third century, it was rebuilt after 300 years. And so they're also their, their main industry of myrrh would remind them about death and coming to life. And so he pulls out of the culture of the city to make a statement, I'm the first and the last, I died and came to life. And so when he says, I know your afflictions and poverty, Jesus knows by personal experience because, of course, he suffered. It isn't beyond his knowledge as God Almighty. It isn't beyond his ability to be with them and to help them. And so Jesus empathizes with the suffering that his followers experience for the sake of his kingdom. And what we're talking about here isn't just life's annoyances. You know, I was was asking somebody, you know, did all this cold weather, just the leaves suddenly became dull? They were all vibrant and alive, and now they're dull, and I find that annoying. This isn't the kind of suffering that we're talking about here. Traffic, you know, gosh, it took extra long uh, to get to Colville because, you know, traffic was slow. I got behind this slow driver who just wouldn't go more than 50 miles an hour, and I can't go my five miles over the speed limit. What's wrong? I'm so annoyed. This is not the kind of suffering Smyrna was facing. It's not life's little annoyances. These are crushing burdens. Jesus says, I know your poverty. And we aren't just talking about somebody who lives in a lesser housing and you know they don't have all the nice things and, and might not quite have food every day. But this was a crushing poverty because... Many of them had gone from barely making it to starving to death. Why? Do you remember back in Acts when we talked about, you know, how the the church was selling things and helping those who are in need? Because as Christians left Judaism in the book of Acts, they got disenfranchised and put out of the synagogue and had no way to make a living. Well, imagine you're in a city where you have to offer a pinch of incense and say Caesar is Lord and you refuse. 
First, they would kill them. And if they didn't kill them, then you lost your business. You lost your means of making an income. So they were literally starving and they didn't have Barnabas and such selling all this property to help feed them. So there they are in the middle of one of the most opulent cities of Asia Minor, starving, destitute. The church was destitute in the middle of one of the richest cities of the Roman Empire. So they were further persecuted, it says in scripture, by slander. Slander from the Jewish, so-called Jewish people. And so the other sounds pretty major, but imagine wherever you go, lies are told about you. Things are, are concocted and all kinds of wild accusations. You know, in the early church history, they said that Christians were cannibals because they ate the body of Christ and drank blood. So it gets twisted. Satan twists. And they get slandered, and Jesus has strong words saying, these are not true Jews. These are not the Jews that came from Abraham while they came out of his bloodline, but not out of his spirit. And they're advancing Satan's agenda. Do you know, in history, some of the most brutal persecutions have been religious. And not just, we think, in our turn, we look at ISIS and and some of those things, and we think, oh, they're just so bloodthirsty and horrible, and they are. But you know, many other major religions, including people calling themselves Christians, have done similar things in history. Did you know that? So when we stand up and say, oh, look how bad they are, they look at us, the Muslims do, and say, yeah, but do you remember the Inquisitions? You tortured people, made them confess, or you killed them? Do you remember the Crusades where people were slaughtered? And so Christians have their hands, or so-called Christians. Hindus have slaughtered and murdered people. Most of the major religions of the world have incidences of persecution. So in our case, where you're trying to be a true follower of Christ, John 16, 2 warns us that this is, they all think that you, they, when they put you out of the synagogue, which again isn't like, oh no, I don't get to go to synagogue anymore. You lost your means of living. You lost your standing in the community. And so again, you, you could starve to death. And so John 16, 2 says, they think when they do this, they are doing a service to God. John 16, 2, check it out. And so this is what's happening, and it's happened in other points in history. So God reminds them, though they are poor in the world, they are spiritually rich. Pulling out James chapter 2, 5, similar idea. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? See, there's so much more in the world than what we see. We judge based on how things are. You know, the leaves didn't turn or these people are acting this way and things are that way. But we don't see a whole other world that's even more real. That's the spirit world because we don't see it with our eyes. But James says, you may not be rich by the world's standards, but you are rich in faith. And that's going to count for a lot. So if you're looking... In your bulletin, you'll find an outline if you want to pull that out. The first point on that outline, remember God knows your suffering, so don't be afraid. God knows that he's aware. Jesus has experienced the suffering. He has experienced the same kinds of feelings that you have when you suffer. 
So don't be afraid. Remember that. You're not alone. In Ravensbrück, you might recognize that name from the World War II concentration camp built in 1939 in Germany that murdered over 90,000 men. I mean, sorry, not men. It was a camp for women and children. 90,000. This prayer was found in the clothing of one of the slaughtered children. This child wrote, O Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. Do not remember all of the suffering they have inflicted upon us. Remember instead the fruits we have borne because of this suffering, our fellowship, our loyalty to one another, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown from this trouble. When our persecutors come to be judged by you, Lord, let these fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. How do you write something like that? I mean, maybe Bonhoeffer could have written this because he's an adult and he was a spiritual guy. But how does a child come up with that kind of insight into the heart of God? So how do you respond to suffering, especially when it's unjust? Become afraid? Angry? I would suggest four things. We're going to do two now and two at the second point. Rely on Jesus. If you're suffering, how do you respond? Well, first, rely on Jesus. He knows your struggles. He knows what you're feeling. So pour out your heart to him. Rely on Jesus for your stability. Rely on Jesus for your care, your emotional care, your spiritual care, even your physical care. Number two, remember what really matters. Struggle has a way of clarifying our values, doesn't it? Suffering reminds us what's important and what's not. Don't confuse what you're living on with what you're living for. And don't confuse your popularity with your purpose. Those are two memorable sayings. Rick, um, I forgot his name at Saddleback Church. Warren, yeah, Rick Warren's. So you discover that the greatest things in the world aren't things. You can lose your home, you can lose your job, you can lose your beauty, you can lose your health, but you cannot ever lose your relationship with God. He says, I will be with you always through everything, even suffering, even when it's not fair, even when you do get fearful and angry. You can't lose that relationship with God. So rely on him and remember what matters. So verse 10 of Revelation 2, those are the things the church is suffering. And now with each church, except for the church of Philadelphia, there's an admonition. Here's the one for Smyrna. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. So the weakness of the church in Smyrna, which compared to the next churches we're going to do, seems pretty mild. Maybe weakness is too strong, but something that they could improve on is that they are stuck in a fear of suffering, in this state of being so afraid that fear can paralyze. You ever notice that when you're afraid, you just get paralyzed. 
and you react in ways that you don't. Karen likes to sneak up on me. She doesn't intend to, but she'll sneak up and then go, hi, honey, and then I'll just jump out of my head, and I, I lose my concentration, and I'm like, you know, why are you stalking me like this? You creep up like a cougar. And so we, all of a sudden, we, you know, we are paralyzed. We stop. Our heart's racing. We're afraid. But when that sustains because we're afraid of suffering, it can do something to our soul. And perhaps the church in Smyrna was not really resting completely in God's care and his sovereignty to say, God's in control. God knows my suffering. He loves me and cares for me. And they'd forgotten or they, at least they weren't clinging to that. But let's be honest, if you and I were in that situation, how many of us would respond any different than they, they did to be paralyzed, angry, or fearful? See, sometimes, though, in our Christian life, we can become so afraid of anything risky for God because we fear the cost, so we avoid those spiritual conversations because, you know, how might the people respond to us? We hold back compassion because, you know, if I get involved in giving to somebody, I might have to give more later. And I don't want to get all wrapped up and tied into somebody else's problems. They probably deserve it anyway for the choices they made. Some of us think that, don't we? So we hold back our compassion. We can get caught up in a fear cycle because we're just trying to find this place of safety and security. And we can end up getting kind of trapped in, in living and keeping our world secure and everything safe that we live, end up living behind the walls of a fortress. We end up not pursuing God's calling for us because we want to stay safe in our fortress. So we shrink back and we don't go pursue Jesus' calling to go out and make disciples. Because when you go out there, it's risky, isn't it? Those conversations are risky. Those relationships are risky. Events can happen. We're safer at home. We're safer at church. So we get paralyzed by fear and we miss pursuing God's calling. But Jesus warns them, you know, as bad as it's been, things are going to get worse. Some of you will be thrown into prison and you will even die. And yet suffering has multiplicity of purposes in scripture. Did you know that? Not all suffering is from the same cause or purpose. Some of us suffer because we made bad choices. You know, you drive too fast, you get a ticket. Worse, you get in a car wreck. You eat too much, well, we know what happens then. We don't take care of ourselves. We don't pursue the relationships in the way we should. We make bad choices, so we suffer. Number two, and these are on your outline, by the way, some suffering is because somebody else made bad choices, and we reap the consequences of that. Some of you grew up in difficult homes. I grew up in a home where There was alcohol, as did my wife Karen, two different kind of styles of alcoholism. But we both bear consequences. We've read books called Adult Children of Alcoholics early on to see what happens when two people growing up in alcoholic families come together, and it's messy. And so we end up with the consequences of somebody else's choices that they made, Number three, some suffering is to steer us away from a harmful pathway. We may not recognize it as harmful, 
like the Apostle Paul. He had this thorn in the flesh that we're not entirely sure what that was, but if it was a physical malady or persecution, constant or whatever he was referring to, he said there was a purpose in that constant suffering that God would not take away, even though he prayed three times for it to be removed. And that purpose was to keep him humble. Paul was on a trajectory that having seen, you know, the third heaven and all these revelations and all of the things that he'd experienced, he could become arrogant. And we kind of know his temperament was a rather aggressive one already, naturally. So humility was something God wanted to protect him, to keep him off a harmful path. Number four, some suffering is a demonstration of God's power. The man born blind in John, the gospel of John chapter four. Some suffering is to test and refine our faith. And that's what Smyrna's case, testing and refining. God knows that if he doesn't test us and refine us and keep us going forward, we can get stuck and settled. Our faith will become stagnant. He refines us to keep us focusing on him and not on ourselves. Or he might have us suffer because he has to, we're holding on to something too tight, a possession, a relationship, an outcome, a success. And he has to pry our fingers loose with suffering to get us to look back to him and quit clinging to the wrong things. So what does God want to loosen your grip from this morning? If you could think and write down on your outline, here's something God is working and he's brought some some trials, some temptations and, and struggles in my life to help me let go of this or to put me on a pathway toward him. What would you write down? Suffering has a purpose. Now, when they first began making golf balls, they made them all smooth. And they found that after the golf balls got kind of scuffed and beat up and Some of my golf balls earlier in my life had actual divots in them. But they found when these golf balls got scuffed a little bit, they went farther. And so the golf ball manufacturers began to make dimples in the golf balls. You can see there. So they would go farther. It didn't help me any. but So when they say a little scuffing, a little suffering, and it it helps the golf ball travel farther. What about your soul? Could your soul be like a golf ball? A little scuffing, a little suffering, and you can spiritually travel farther than you did. So suffering has a purpose, and Revelation 2.10 says, persecution for 10 days. It's not a literal 10 days, but 10 was the number of fullness. Not that, oh good, it's only going to last 10 days. But this is like 10 is a number of, it will run its full course, but it won't be forever. And it may seem long, but it won't last unendingly. God will one day set things right. He calls us to remain faithful in the midst of even the more intense persecution or even the more intense suffering that you might find. So don't give up, he says. Don't be afraid. Don't retaliate and become like the evil you're reacting against. Verse 10 goes on and says, be faithful even to the point of death. See, there's not a promise that God's with you. You won't have your body taken, but your soul will never be touched. 
And he says, I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. So the reward, there's a reward if you stay with God, if you cling to him and know that he cares. There is a reward, it says, that you will wear the victor's crown, which is eternal life with God. He says, I will give you life as your victor's crown. In other words, you will not only have God with you, walking through, caring for you now in the suffering, you will have the victor's crown and you'll be with him, unencumbered by sin and death and suffering. All the tears will be wiped away in heaven one day. And then you won't have the second death. See, the victor's crown of life, in contrast, is the second death, which means eternal punishment by separation from God. So you can be with him in heaven or you can be separated from him in hell. And that's your two choices. So Jesus challenged them, hold this life loosely with open hands because something greater is coming. Be willing to lose your life so that you can gain your life as a way He said in the New Testament, the one who seeks to cling to this life and have all that they can from it ends up losing their life. And they're not really satisfied in the end. So on your outline number two, realize God uses suffering to refine us and draw us to him. So don't be afraid. Suffering has a purpose of refinement. If you know, in refining, when they refine silver, for instance, they they burn it and burn it and burn it to get all of the impurities off. And they say, they can tell when silver is finished, when the silver is ready, that when the silversmith can look into that that hot, you know, molten silver and see his own reflection. That's a great illustration of what God wants to do. He wants to keep refining us until he can see his own reflection in us. I don't know about you, but there's a lot more refining that needs to come in my life. So realize God uses suffering to draw us closer. So we don't need to be afraid because God has us safe in his hands and he's going to use that suffering for a purpose. So how is God using suffering right now to shape your heart? I mentioned two things that we talked about earlier when you encounter suffering first rely on Jesus and second remember what matters number three is to refuse to be trapped in fear don't let fear imprison you decide when you suffer am I going to allow this to make me better or bitter better or bitter because it is a choice that we have You know, there's little correlation. Some people go, but if I could just get past these circumstances, I wouldn't be angry and bitter. You know, things would improve in my life if my spouse would treat me better or my kids would respond the way I want them to. I wouldn't be at wit's end and act like I do. But you know, that's not really borne up by experience. You know, some of the people who have had the worst circumstances in life have the most cheerful outcomes. Missionaries can tell you stories of ministering in literal city trash dumps in third world countries where the people live off of trash and have some of the most outgoing, lovely spirits about them who are happy, more happy than the people who have a lot of things. See, that's 
the lie that Satan tells you. If you could only have a little more, if these things would only stop happening to you, then you could be happy. And there are other people who have so much, they have many blessings, they really haven't ever encountered deep suffering. Nothing's really gone wrong in their life, and yet they complain. They're rarely satisfied, even though they have so much more than the people who live in the trash dump. So you can't say circumstances determine your outlook on life. Your outlook on life determines how you'll look at circumstances. So which are you? Are you a person who has a lot and complains a lot? Or do you want to become somebody who's rich in the spirit? Even when you do have stuff, it's not wrong to have stuff. Don't get me wrong. It's how we respond to it. So refuse to be trapped in fear. Number four is receive support from others. Don't isolate yourself saying, nobody knows what it's like. Nobody knows the pain I'm going through. I'm missing from church. Nobody calls me for months. And you want to hide and be all by yourself, thinking nobody understands me, nobody cares. But you need other people. Even when we drop the ball, and we will, you still need the body. You weren't made to live the spiritual life alone. You need people's encouragement. You need their perspective. Sometimes you just need their presence. In many cultures of the world, when someone dies, the people go and they just sit with them. They don't give them advice, you know, well, they're in a better place and their suffering is over. They just go sit with them. And so sometimes that's what we need. Somebody just sit with us while we try to sort through things. So people can help us focus on what is left, not what is lost. Last story. In the Civil War during that time in Louisiana, there was a man named, as you see on your screen, well, you don't see his name, you see him, Edmund McElhaney. And Edmund McElhaney in Louisiana had a salt works and a sugar cane plantation, and then he had to flee in 1863. When he came back after the war, two years later in 1865, everything was destroyed. His sugarcane fields were ruined. His salt works were gone. So with no income, about the only thing he said I had left was just a few hot Mexican peppers that had reseeded themselves in my garden all by themselves. So how could having a handful of Mexican hot peppers possibly help a man on the brink of starvation? So he started experimenting with those peppers, and he found a sauce that he could make. His newfound sauce today is known all over the world as Tabasco sauce. Yeah, recognize that bottle. 150 years later, the McElhaney Company and its tobacco Business is still run by the McElhaney family. Tragedy was turned to triumph. The seeds of deliverance are sown in suffering. Don't let fear motivate motivate your life. Don't let fear motivate your life. What's your biggest fear in the spiritual life? Just stop and think about that for a minute. If you were just just have a few minutes, what are you most afraid of will happen to you? And, and what are you afraid of in your spiritual life will happen if that thing happens? How has fear held you back from pursuing something new that God wants to do in your life? 
said in June, the first sermon I did here in the first Sunday of June, there's going to be changes in a transition. It's just natural way of things. So is something new that God wants to do in you in the midst of this transition period when there's changes happening around you? What does God want to do in you? Are you afraid of suffering? How have you become better? How has God developed your heart as a result of suffering? And what do you think God wants to say to you right now? So I want you to take, a, just a, we'll take a one minute and just have kind of a silent time to reflect on what is God saying to you right now with suffering? What are you afraid of that's holding you back? So let's take that moment and